Hi, this is Andy Brewer with the Northwest AHEC Healthcare Insights Podcast. Today I have Jennifer Houlihan, who's the Vice President of Value-Based Care and Population Health at Wake Forest Baptist Health. And she comes to us from getting her BS and MS from the highways and byways of Tallahassee, Florida. (laughs) Uh, MS from Thomas Jefferson University in Population Health. And she's kind of a bit of a homecoming for you. Is that right? Yes, it is. I was previously at Wake for almost 10 years and then spent some time in Vermont, and now I'm back. Well, good. We're glad to have you. Thank you. Um, So the reason I reached out to you is, you know, anytime I see population health, um, that's one of the things we're, we're, you know, our mission is to serve our region in improving the quality and the quantity of, of healthcare professionals in, in our region. And so anytime I see population health, I like, you know, it, it, it grabs my interest. And so I wanted to bring you in and just talk about, uh, well, the transition from fee for service to value-based care and how that affects population health. So, um, I would read, uh, what you're responsible for in this thing, but I don't understand most of it. I did, I did see the word engaging community partners and and yeah. improve operational financial performance and value based arrangements. So, can you elaborate a little bit on value based care and 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 what that means as far as how healthcare sure works? Sure. So, Wake Forest has been on a I would say a journey for at least five plus years in wanting to be it's one of the key i think p's in the strategic plan and wanting to be a value-based leader in the region uh, and that really means thinking differently about how we pay for healthcare services and part of that is moving into value-based arrangements which instead of just being paid fee-for-service it's really more about uh, being responsible for patients and their total cost of care and sort of first and foremost, and that is improving quality. So Mm -hmm. in essence, many of these contracts, we don't get paid if we don't deliver a a high enough uh, threshold or level of quality. And we're also uh, incented where, again, the the sort of the transition from fee-for-service to deliver care in the most appropriate cost setting and, and reduce the cost of care. So in essence, when we go in these contracts, we always have a certain set of quality performance metrics that we need to achieve, but we're also required to think about how we're going to lower the cost of care and have a target to do that. So that's a very different model, and that requires a very different sort of mindset and set of care delivery models and analytics and uh, engaging community partners is really key because no matter where those patients are, whether they're in the doors of our hospital or one of our clinics or even in one of our competitors in the community, we're responsible for their total cost of care. And that's where we start to think about things like social determinants, behavioral health, in addition to their clinical care, because that's all factoring in to how we sort of need to manage and think about their delivery across the continuum. Wow, there's a lot there. Um, so we have the practice support group, which I kind of peripheral peripherally follow and and uh you know they were engaged with the region and getting practices up on ehrs and getting them certified medical was it uh patient care the patient center medical home that's right patient center medical home and so i'm kind of uh, plugged in a little bit to how the qualities are measured but how does that translate into changes in care at the at the clinic level 
Yeah, so we a lot of the changes start in in primary care. So a lot of the quality measures, they're considered population health measures, whether they're screening or managing chronic disease, such as diabetes, it's very focused around primary care. So sort of when we think about how do we start this journey, of course, quality's always been at the forefront, but it's, it's doing a better job of engaging with the um, providers and their clinics around where they are in the performance and giving them the tools they need to do a better job. So a great example of that is um, with some of our physician champions here, Dr. Billy Rice and in internal medicine really thought, uh, how should we think differently about doing annual wellness visits? How can we incorporate some of the quality metrics in there? So that's a great example of leveraging the Epic EMR for some of its functionality, but using our providers as really that sort of leading voice of what makes sense to them and what would be best for patients to incorporate some of the quality metrics piece and things that we need to really be mindful and track in the value-based contracts. The other piece is is also then thinking differently about uh, navigation. So how are we using some of the data that we can take out of the EMR, but also get from our payers that tell us who is really sick and high risk, and then resourcing that with RN navigators that work closely with the practices, but also can be that extension to the practice when they're not seeing the provider doing chronic care management, putting goals of care together. Uh, And the other kind of key piece is the pharmacy management piece, really thinking how do we do med adherence. So it's really very proactive. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I'd say in the fee-for-service world, not always, but it's often, you know, it's reactive. A patient is discharged many times and then, you know, we want to do something differently to prevent that. But in as we move on this continuum for value-based care, we're really starting to leverage all of our analytics and so we can really have more insight into who our patients are, who we should be reaching out to proactively and working with them. And so, you know, with our practices, we have a value-based partner in our region, CHESS, which is mm-hmm. our health enablement strategic solutions uh, group that Wake Forest um, is majority owner, but very much a partner with. And they really actually came and did it sort of, when we started this, an assessment of where are we? So we had some of those components of the patient-centered medical home. Where do we want to think we want to move to? What are some of these programs like putting health navigators in the clinics? Um, working with, again, physician champions such as Billy Rice to think about how we manage some of the wellness visit pieces differently. Um, So we kind of put in a whole host of programs, and a lot of them are behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. So we always want providers to deliver the same care to everyone, but how we're wrapping that differently behind the scenes is sort of using, again, that analytics, who we need to reach out to, and really managing patients as an extension of the practices. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned public health navigators. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? So, yeah. So one of the models that we use here in care management is there are RN navigators. Uh, we've had a transitions of care program for probably five, six years where we're really trying to uh, identify and work with those high-risk patients that maybe have had several readmissions and we want to prevent. And sort of an extension that came out of that is a hospital-to-home program, but then now also an RN navigation program, which the way we've structured it here, and I've seen it done in many other places in the country, is really it's part of supporting our primary care clinics. And so based on the number of patients, some clinics are very large and require their own. Some are very small. So that means one can serve more than one. But um, 
really what that is is they are identifying those patients that we're at risk for. We're using risk stratification. So who are those really complex patients that need um, more support? Um, and so oftentimes the primary care physician will sort of introduce their navigators and extension of their team. And, and that's an opportunity to really work closely with that patient, again, on their goals of care, making sure they're coming into their appointments, filling their prescriptions, um, getting the screenings. <laughs> yeah, it, it is, you know, you know, and there's a social work component. So if obviously if what's contributing to their risk might be transportation or food insecurity, there's also an opportunity to help link them into those services. So that is something that under the traditional fee-for-service model, there is no reimbursement for that. Mm -hmm. Um, But in the sort of value-based model, it's an important component of really focusing in on that kind of rising and higher risk population and being that support when the the patient's not present in the clinic. So Mm -hmm. that can mean a weekly or a monthly phone call or telemedicine type visit. Um, But really it's someone the patient can also call when they have questions and should I show up at the ED or could you get me in? So there's a whole range of examples of that. But really in the care management piece, the social work, RN, there can be dietary support, you know, again, pharmacy support, but really how we wrap around the patient mm-hmm. um, and, and really help manage their, their, their care. How, uh, what, or I should say, what additional training does an RN need to, to fill this role? Uh, so there's, there is, uh, you know, we've been very fortunate with Northwest Community Care Network and, and as part of our service area, and, you know, they've been a big partner with us in PCMH and, Um, So motivational interviewing would be one. I mean, it is very much a kind of a coaching position. So I know that that's been um, a key piece of really, you know, obviously there are RNs and they've worked in either in the inpatient or outpatient setting, but uh, the motivational interviewing and there are courses around that Mm -hmm. kind of in that health coaching space is really probably one of the critical ones. Okay, um, I'm going to step back uh, a little bit. You came from Vermont. Um, having stepped away from this area, can you spot or at least uh, describe any kind of similarities to Vermont and to our region and maybe contrasts? Sure. Yeah, I mean, Vermont, you know, is, is on a pretty, what I say, a pretty aggressive value-based journey. They're They're in their own CMS waiver taking full risk for Medicare, Medicaid, and commercial lives. And very much like here, part of, you know, my roles and responsibility were to how do we leverage the resources we have. So very engaged with our community health improvement team and our transitions of care team, which included RN care navigation, social work, dietary support, and really kind of more of a community health worker component supporting our primary care clinics, but also really tightly engaging with our community-based organizations. So I think that's, uh, I think Wake and my previous history here, we were doing a lot of great work with our community partners around improving access, whether it's setting up a clinic um, in our homeless shelter or partnering with Novant to put a, put a clinic in East Winston off Highland Avenue, supporting our FQHCs and other. But what I really liked about what Vermont was doing is they were incorporating those community partners as part of their value-based care delivery. And a great example of that is, again, you know, using the data and, and what 
comes out as part of these value-based agreements is understanding, again, where patients are on that risk spectrum. So for our more complex, high-risk patients, uh, really our ACO partner, which is our accountable care organization, really had a model in place that incented not only our primary clinics, but also our community-based organizations to be uh, a lead or part of a care management team for some of those high-risk patients. And that is something that is, I think, I'm hopeful we'll come here one day in terms of being more of an accountable community. But that was something that I know I was really impressed with is just sort of the amount of investments made to bring our behavioral health partners, our housing partners, our aging partners uh, to the table to be part of the value-based complex care management and and providing the financial alignment incentives to do that. Right. Now, is that something that you're, you're going to bring as far as engaging community partners to this role or? or? Yeah. I mean, I certainly with the, the team that I work with, yes. And I think there's some opportunities to do that in the Medicaid space here. North Carolina is going through a pretty significant Medicaid transformation uh, through its own waiver process with CMS. And the state I know is really focused in on really thinking about, again, that community social piece of food insecurity, housing, transportation, all the things that really help make a person whole and are essential to them really achieving optimal health. Uh, And so they have set aside innovation dollars to do that. So I think there is and hopefully will be an opportunity to bring some of those community partners and start to think more intentionally around, you know, typically social services are on one side and healthcare delivery on the other, but how do we come together? And, Mm -hmm. And CMS over the last few years has really, you know, and they had sort of an innovation demonstration program around, again, accountable communities. And that really was how do you bring those two together? Um, I think, you know, taking it a step further, Vermont was saying, yeah, we're bringing them together and we want to see them actually do be on a complex care plan. And oh, by the way, it doesn't always have to be the health provider that's the lead care manager. It may be more appropriate to have the social service agency. So mm-hmm. I would love to see us get there and think broadly about being an accountable community. Mm-hmm. I think that would be great. Yeah. How, how would a community organization uh, get involved? I mean, like for... You know, say there's a faith-based group or or just a regular NGO that says, "Hey, we want to plug in to helping yeah. reduce social determinant uh, inequities." I guess you could say, and 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 where do they go for both partnering with someone right. as as large as us, and also like get funding um, and that kind of thing? I'm I'm just yeah, um, that's those are those are great questions. I mean, that probably. Going back to your question, what are some of the differences? I would say, you know, Vermont is, you know, had the funding in place, you know, and a significant amount of that was coming from state funding. I think that's a difference in North Carolina. You know, our ACO doesn't receive state dollars, so it's hard, you know, that that is a little bit of a harder uphill challenge. I think part of that will be, you know, I think, my easiest answer is in this innovation space. I think the PTRC, the Piedmont Triad Regional Council, is working to bring some of those partners together to start in the Medicaid space. And I think that's a great opportunity because there will be funding. And I think um, at the end of the day, people do follow their funding sources. And that's where we need to challenge ourselves to think differently about what we do fund. As, as you move in the risk space, 
what might have made sense in the fee-for-service space may no longer, and you're thinking differently about what does this patient really need to be healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that you know, one recommendation is sort of plugging into what's happening in the Medicaid innovation space. Um, and then I think as we evolve here and getting more organized, and you know, there's some great, I think there is already some great work here around what Faith Health has done to engage community partners, what the population health team has done here. And sometimes it's really about alignment, you know? And so where do we have shared goals? Uh, Where can we think differently about funding? How do we engage, you know, those handoffs when we're identifying some of those high-risk patients and maybe some of those risks, again, are obviously more socially based? Um, There is an opportunity there. I think it's just a little more thought process on what that looks like and what so yeah i think the challenge is always getting organizations to work together not overlap I, i've been on the boards of several nonprofits and and seen how there is you know i wouldn't say competition but there's just not a great degree of collaboration because everyone wants to do good in some sure. way and it's not always coordinated um how would you recommend yeah. those work together or, or contact? Who, who, who could they reach out to for? I mean, I don't know that this is your area yeah. of expertise. But. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'll draw on my Vermont experience. I mean, we, you know, just to give a kind of an illustrative example, we had through our uh, ACO partners, you know, we were given sort of the technical assistance grant because, again, thinking broadly about where we were in the value-based space, you know, we were not only engaging with the primary care clinics that were owned by the UVM Health Network, but also were independent. So we had some trust built up in the community. Uh, and I think, you know, as, as I'm sure there are here, there were a lot of community-based coalitions. So one of the pieces was bringing together and starting an accountable communities collaborative so that was an opportunity to bring the clinical with the social piece Um, and then layered under that was really that complex care group again that's where the incented dollars were around let's actually move towards having collaborative um, care plans and and there's incentives and some structure around that you know, that is something to be candid I'll I'll have to kind of dig into a little bit here and see where that that is um, I know there are some different alliances and others that I think have some dollars available to fund initiatives, and there's some uh, unique things going on with, um, I think, out of the food bank, a place, you know, purpose-built communities and some of the innovation work. So trying to, I guess I, I need to probably understand that better. Mm-hmm. But I do think, you know, going to your kind of comment around silos, I think that's everywhere. Mm -hmm. And and part of that is because people follow their funding sources and they have a different set of accountabilities and it is hard to break down those barriers. I think for Vermont, you know, it's a smaller place. They've had, again, these, uh, the benefit of having state dollars really kind of designated to support more community based. And I think that's, you know, in my previous time here, that was always a struggle when budgets get cut, social work positions get cut, makes it harder to, have those linkages in place Mm -hmm. so you know i think not to keep repeating myself i think what's happening in the medicaid innovation space is at least something that i've 
that's probably what I've run across first. That seems like it's really thinking about bringing it together. Uh, I think Imagine Forsyth was was one that I was plugged into previously, which was really trying to look at how you bring together healthcare, housing, um, economics, and food. You know, bring to do what you just said, bring those partners together rather than all doing the same thing. And mm-hmm. what was unique about that, it was was really working with some of our communities and helping them drive what do you really need rather than all of these partners just doing their siloed things probably overlapping and may or may not be what the community needed the most. So I think there's great um, initiatives already in place here. It's just, mm-hmm. what is that next step? And yeah, Figuring I, that out. Yeah. I guess in my mind's eye, I just think of some sort of meta or umbrella organization that helps all these community groups plug in to each other and, and a list of things that they can do to add a component of health and now I'm thinking just translating it to very acute uh, example would be like meals on wheels. You know, we, we support that. We, mm-hmm. we've been doing that for years and, and to go in, deliver a hot meal to, to those who need it. But also wouldn't that be great if there was also a health navigator involved and say, Hey, well, we see that there's, you know, this, these stairs don't look safe or, yep. you know, or are you adhering to your medications and kind of doing a spot check as you, go into these homes every, you know, you just, I think you just described that the accountable communities model. So yes, it's, it's, it goes beyond more than just giving a patient a list of here's some potential resources. It is potentially having that bi-directional relationship, almost like a clearinghouse to say, we're going to connect you in. And there's, there's some opportunities. Health leads is, is one that's been doing this in this space where they were started in Boston, but Really, it was we want to give a prescription for your social needs, but we want to go a step further and help you actually get access and get you into those social needs. And, mm-hmm. and, and so that's a great example of one doing that. Um, I think in Vermont, we were doing the very similarly. And I remember having a lot of meetings with our social partners and they were asking exactly what you just said. Well, how do I refer to you? I don't think healthcare has... has is very good at that. We mm. haven't quite cracked that code. And, you know, one of the things that technical things that's come up is sharing of data. I, you know, I, I remember here wanting to share data with our EMS because there are some high risk patients that we probably both want to manage better and collaborate on, but with HIPAA and other guidelines and health, you know, protected health information, sometimes sharing information can be a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where, you know, we have to think through those things, but I a hundred percent agree with you. I think it is a bi-directional, perhaps it is a clearing house, but it's a, it's a way where a healthcare provider could refer out and vice versa. Um, and doing a little bit more than definitely more than giving a list of the resources. It's actually connecting them in. Um, you know, I know one of the care models that we've had here as part of downtown health plaza, it's for a really high risk population, but it's called care plus. And I think some of the successes in that model really were because had really good partnerships with some of our behavioral health partners and social work support that was really connected with DSS and others. And it was really connecting patients into the services that not made the full difference, but really was a key part of sort of getting those patients to be better managed 
maybe to you know seek their care at the clinic versus at the ED, mm-hmm. really thinking that way. And so I think that's what it takes. And I do think moving into the value-based space positions us better for that because, again, under fee-for-service, those typically aren't uh, not that they're not important, they're just they're not as financially viable as maybe they become in a in a population health value based space because in that model we're really trying to keep people as healthy as possible and where the best possible location where they need care, which hopefully is either something we can do for them in their home or in the clinic setting and and if they don't need to be in the hospital or a skilled nursing facility we can do a better job managing their health so mm-hmm. they don't have to be in those places um and and that requires again a little bit of a different thinking and and how we partner and maybe making investments in different care models and um that we haven't before mm-hmm. yeah well I, I mean the value-based care model i think is is definitely the direction that w- w- we are rightly heading heading in or, or have adopted and and just for our listeners the you know just think of it as your mechanic uh you know just wants you to bring your car in when it breaks and they're going to fix it and charge you and they would love to see you tomorrow with another problem but the value based is to let's look at the holistic health of this patient and figure right. out how we can get them optimally healthy and less medicalized and and we get reimbursed for that that look at the patient to say what what are the metrics that we need to follow for this patient and let's improve those and and show that progression to better health and not just right just not just right. treatment of symptoms when they come about and i think it's being you know being more proactive about it so mm-hmm. not just waiting for someone to get sick but if we know based on you know their previous utilization patterns or what data has been shared with us that there's there's a likelihood that they might be getting sick that's the difference too is that how do we reach out and engage them earlier Mm -hmm. um and i would say you know population health it it's it's always been around it's definitely a buzzword and i would say our public health partners would say we've been doing population health our entire careers and they have i think the difference is the financial model is changing to support population health. And that is a big difference, especially in the healthcare mm-hmm. um, provider space. So that's where I would say, you know, I, I started my career back in the 90s under HMOs, and that was all about controlling the cost of care. And I would say one of the other differences today is also quality is much more at the forefront. And so I think that's another important component of it is, you know, patient quality. Um, delivering the best possible care is what's really driving this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well, I, I've again, I've been kind of at the sideline watching the practice support groups, and I've, I guess, some of the how this translates into an office visit for a patient would be now they're asking you, you know, the SBIRT for alcohol and substance and then tobacco use questionnaires and then maybe foot exam for, you know, diabetic risk and some of the low hanging fruit of, you know, just checking on that patient's, uh, you know, acute kinds of things that can be addressed immediately. What are some other ways or some other beyond those core things? Well, yeah, it's interesting that you say that. So, you know, this, the social determinants of health questionnaire, you know, Epic, our large EMR now has that built into it. CMS has its 
sort of designated questionnaire, Health Leads, Prepare, there are other organizations. That is now probably becoming the next iteration of layering those questions. I think the trick, or not the trick, but sort of the pivoting that we're moving in this space is, you know, that's just a component. We, you know, you coming into the clinic visit and sort of telling us your life story and some of these elements does give us a better perspective on how, where do we maybe need to focus or maybe link you up with services. The other piece is that because we're partnering with pairs in a different way on, and moving in these value-based arrangements, they're now sharing some of their claims data that we haven't had access for. And so that's where we're really trying to get smart about leveraging that because that's also telling me you showed up at another ED 10 times, you're, you're, you know, you might have other health conditions that you didn't necessarily see in our system, that if we knew that information, we could do a better job caring for you. And so that's where sort of your role as a patient, what we're asking you, uh, taking in that other elements of information, putting that together to try to put together the best possible care plan and get the best possible resource because maybe it is more of a social worker, maybe it is an RN, maybe it is a pharmacist that is potentially we need to pair up with you to kind of help you get to that next level. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, the social determinant piece, you know, yeah, expert, um, understanding all those will probably be one of the next pieces that layers in. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the questions we always ask is, what are we, we going to do with that information? So, I mean, that's another important piece. Um connecting with some of my colleagues around the country where this is really happening kind of now is if we're going to ask these questions, what are we going to do about them? So that's the important piece. Again, going back to our conversation we just had about how do we link in with our social service partners and think more about accountable communities that sort of starts that conversation too, that if we're going to ask you about your food and your transportation and housing, What's that next step for us? Right, right. Well, I mean, as you were talking, I was just thinking of the sheer scale of how do you address every patient and right. cover all this. And right. and it's hard to do in a short office visit with the clinician with their back to you on the keyboard. We've talked about that on this podcast before yeah. and how impersonal that can be. And I'm just trying to think of what types of things do you see in the future that could be utilized to help understand the patient's health before they even walk yeah, in. Yeah, exactly. Well, so just what I mentioned, some of that is having, you know, think using the patient information that we have to think to identify that ahead of time. Um, and maybe that results in somebody reaching out to you ahead of time um, to link you in or say, let's talk about goals of care. Or maybe you haven't even made an appointment yet and saying, hey, I think we'd love for you to come in. I'd like you to meet my care team. We're going to work with you there. That That's certainly one. Um, some of the other components, you know, that's where the annual wellness visit piece, you know. So there's there's some really interesting things coming out of our innovation quarter space that are really trying to engage patients before, maybe while they're in the waiting room for the appointment, mm-hmm. but engaging them on what they need um, to close some of their care gaps around colon screening, other screenings. Um, So I could see that as a potential too, where we're really engaging the patient and and that, whether it's through the patient portal, through an iPad questionnaire, um, 
And then, you know, again, that example that I gave around our annual wellness visit, that really was an example of um, a project that was meant to give the provider back some more time to be face-to-face with a patient. And so it was something that as the patient got into the, to the, the room that the CMA would help them complete. So when the provider got in there, the pieces that were needing attention had turned red and they could just focus on that rather than actually filling out these questionnaires. So that's where I think, again, our patient porter, patient portal and Epic, um, some of these new technologies around having iPad or other technology where they can actually complete things while they're in the waiting room starts to shift some of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely, you know, obviously the whole M health mobile app piece is getting bigger by the day. And so, you know, how patients want to engage, you know, a lot of this, a lot of these questions can be seen as very personal. So what is the right venue to ask these questions? And again, I think it's, creating a level of trust obviously I think we've always consider the provider is that trusted partner for the patient and that's where I think you know they look to the provider to tell them do I need to do this is this important um, but what are some of those other pieces that we can layer in that again allow the provider to focus on what they really need and then perhaps use some of that those extension of that care team, whether it's that RN navigator or social worker to help address some of those other pieces. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm glad you said trust because I was going to bring in privacy and where I was kind of teasing out for future forward thinking is wearables. I mean, we, we've done some mm-hmm. wellness tests or some studies here um, with Fitbits and other types of things. And that, that technology space is advancing quite rapidly. And yeah. then you get into the privacy concerns and, and trust. And the trust is key because if someone's going to wear a device that is going to track their every movement and their heart rate and maybe even their, who knows, their blood sugar and and sleep patterns and even calorie intake. I mean, we could probably potentially see in the next 10 years a lot of that being tracked by some sort of embedded device or wearables that could tap directly into their care organization and provide a lot of things that, mm-hmm. you know, that is talking about being proactive. The, the clinician could, or even the RN navigator says, Hey, you know, we see that you're having some trouble sleeping. Right. And, and there has to be that trust part. And what I, I always struggle with is, you know, we, you know, HIPAA is such a big concern with a lot of stuff, but you go on Instagram and you click someone's post that has Wake Forest Baptist tagged in the location and you see a bunch of people just giving out their health information, will you know, free, like to everyone. And it's like, are are the privacy concerns overstated? Or, I mean, I'm, I'm loading up a lot of things <laughs> to talk about here, but yeah. but it just seems to me that as far as scale is concerned, how do we really monitor the health of our population in in a in a 24-7 yeah. view and, and, and triangulate that privacy and trust and and yeah. combined with the technology. I mean, I think, like, I know there's apps, and I mean, I think Google crowdsources Twitter or Facebook or Instagram posts and can predict when flu is coming. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a great example of the power of social media to leverage maybe a, a trend that's occurring. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, trust... Yeah, definitely, you know, as we've thought about how we bring up some of these care models and engage our providers and 
you know, what would be best for their patients, trust comes to the forefront. And, you know, I think what we've sort of strategically thought of is that, the, that again, that provider is the trusted partner for that patient. And so that's where they are front and center and, you know, helping design and really championing some of these initiatives and because they're an extension of their practice to support that patient. You know, going into the wearable space, there you're right, whether it's mobile apps, wearables, there's a lot in there. Um, I think up into this point, what I've seen is they're often, you know, very condition-specific. So we're looking at high-risk heart failure patients, um, high-risk diabetic patients. Um, and again, you know, patients can opt in for that. So they're, they are sharing information and often there's privacy and again, HIPAA and compliance pieces. So patients do have the right to opt in and share that. So that's, that's one thing I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it is that trust that we are going to monitor, um, that data and have a responsibility to do something, mm-hmm. um, when we see a spike. And so there are technologies out there when let's say you're using one of those mobile devices to check your blood sugar um, if it spikes, uh, a health coach will immediately call you and say, hey, let's talk mm-hmm. what's going on. And that, I guess, starts to blend more into that proactive space. Again, they're not waiting where the patient, you know, is so out of control that yeah. they're, they're sort of beyond the, the medication or other piece. But uh, and then their care is way more expensive. Their yeah. care. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think it's getting to the heart of what are, were a patient's goals. You know, obviously I talked a lot about quality and et cetera, you know, and those are things that whether it's CMS or our payer partners are asking us because they know that's, you know, those are put in place because they are good barometers of helping to manage a patient. But, you know, from a consumer patient perspective, you know, maybe it's going on vacation with my family or being there for my Um, children or grandparents sporting events so trying I think I think that's where health coaching starts to come into it and whether that's again a community health worker health coach or a navigator when we talk about goals of care that's very much thinking about from their you know perspective what what are the goals that they want to achieve and Mm. because we're going to help manage that and maybe one of them is keeping your a1c in check and taking your medication so here's a program that we're we think will really help you Mm -hmm. All of these initiatives aren't for everyone. They work for some and not for others. And that's always sort of the constant um, need to pivot back and forth to really be nimble and sort of say and, and do our evaluation and due diligence of what's working, what's not. Where are we seeing our quality performance exceed? Where are we seeing some gaps and how do we address those? Where are we seeing patients that still, no matter what we do, want to show up in the ED? So it's a constant need, but I will say, you know, trust definitely at the forefront, but there are, you know, patients do have rights in this. And I think it's all about, you know, educating them up front what the benefits are and and helping them make those decisions. But um, it it is a lot. And again, every day there's, there's something new and how do we layer that into what we're what we're trying to do for our patients. Yeah, I mean, I just envision this this time where if 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 you're coming into care and you uh, you know you're you're presented with ways in which you can improve your health, and all that means is you're going to opt in to agreeing to wear a device, let's say, and then that's going to really improve the awareness of your own health, but also 
let us be proactive about mm-hmm. about your right. treatment and, and your overall health and and I just think that sometimes we take the 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 privacy thing I think a little too far I mean I understand it I mean certainly if you're trying to get a life insurance policy and they sure. have all that data they're sure. going to adjust right. accordingly and you know hey they're in business to make money too and uh but I think that wearables and and the just the technology that is getting so low cost and so feature rich and beyond the the mobile apps because some of these some of these patients you know we, you know I, I've been really woken up to the fact that there are a lot of people out there that have trouble reading that that you know English is not their first language mm-hmm. or they just you know the app space they just don't even a touch iPad they just still don't get it you know and and that's okay and I think just having a device that you can just put this on your wrist and and then we'll we'll get with you if we need to but we you know we know if you've taken your medicine I mean we we you know we do live in kind of a surveillance state anyway so it's like we could give up some of our privacy for better health it seems for those who are in that risk level. Yeah, I mean, it, it is, right. I mean, it is a, a a patient's choice, but right, there is a lot of information out there. And I think we're, sometimes you'll hear the phrase, we're, inf, you know, data rich, but information poor, because we, how are we making sense of all this? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we have to be good stewards of the information we collect even here as the health system and, and how we use that to improve the health of our patients. And I think, again, it goes back to that trust, whether it's the patient and their family members seeing that there's some positive return. Mm -hmm. If I, you know, agree to do this and I'm going to stick with it, it's because I'm getting a benefit out of it. Well, I was going to say value for value. It is value for value. Low cost way of letting us monitor you. And we're going to provide you with more proactive approach to better your health. And and it seems like a win-win. It does. I mean, I think, right. And I think, you know, this that that's where we're at. And I, I think some patients readily love it and some are a little wary. So they have to, you have to kind of have to prove it. And I get, I think again, if they have these long standing, you know, they've been a patient of our system for a long time and there's kind of already that relationship there. This is sort of, you know, again, layering on top of that versus somebody who's had a bad experience may not be mm-hmm. so apt to do it. Well, I think, you know, I don't want to get in some kind of, uh, uh, dystopian futuristic view of it but I think as we move it seems like we're moving more acceptance of a you know publicly provided health care for all perhaps I mean I know that's I did come con- from Vermont so this con- <laughs> yeah. can be controversial yeah. but it yeah. seems that if you are going to participate in that and we don't leave the human element in, let's say, the wearables. I'm just going back to that because I just think that's just a huge win for everyone. But uh, so if, if, if we don't get that real-time information, we're going to subject your the data that we do have to some sort of AI algorithm that may or may not be in your best interest uh, or may not provide the best uh, prescribed path for your wellness than working directly with the people that you trust. You know, I mean, that is, you know, that's something we talk a lot about because, you know, going to how we become, how do, how do we leverage all this information, right? For the 
that gives us the best possible view of, of what would be the most important path for you. Um, and that does get into the predictive analytics space that's trying to pull together what what is your clinical data telling us? What is your financial data telling us? What is your social data telling us? You know, integrating that and using algorithms to determine, hey, this is a person who maybe not now, but three months from now, all the information is showing that they might be sick. So is that someone we should reach out to? Maybe they should start tracking wearing a wearable. I can certainly see how that is scary. I think the financial institutions have been doing that for a very long time. I think, again, healthcare, obviously a very different business model, um, lots of complexity and layer, but how do we take this information and, and move to that more proactive space? And I, I, I certainly see all those elements, um, but it's it almost goes back to, again, not using financial or just any marketing, you know, all of those information to tailor different ads or different information to you. It is trying to get to be more personalized, I guess, mm-hmm. if you will, because um, one size doesn't fit all. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you need to achieve your health goals are likely different. I think that that's where, you know, we kind of have different workflows and evidence-based practices that we, of course, use and try to standardize across. But there is definitely that individual patient element of what's really driving them. And I think how we've thought about it um, with our care teams, the more we kind of know going in, it it just helps focus the questioning better and and get to hopefully an outcome or a a plan of care or goals of care for that patient that that works the best for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And keeping on the future thread, you know, I'm thinking of you know the genomic testing and so you could predictively model what someone's health trajectory is and and take steps today to to prevent that or to change that outcome and i mean there's you know and and i don't know if you're aware you know the crispr cas9 and all that technology but it's just fascinating what is going to come across in healthcare or come down in healthcare in the next 10 years. I mean, it's not that far away between, you know, where we are today with our, you know, obesity from affluence or, you know, or, or food deserts, depending on where, where on the economic spectrum you are. But, uh, uh, you know, really, I think tremendous transformation in healthcare through technology. And, and I go keep going back to the, the privacy and mm-hmm. the and and how much trust there needs to be, but also back to the value for value. If I'm going to give my blood and my DNA for testing, you know, I need to know what I'm going to get back out right, of it. And, right, right, right. And I just, you know, we could I could wax philosophical for days <laughs> on on where all yeah, this could head. A, I mean, it is an it is an interesting and very rapidly evolving space. That is for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, you know, I I try to see, you know, I'm an optimist, so I I look for the good in all of it, right. and, and I can see where the darkness can can enter in, you know, especially when there's for profit models. But if we could go, you know, if we really care about the health of our population and we really care about our patients, then you know, I see this as a great, uh, you know, the the technical technological advancements that are coming in medicine as a great boom for the overall health and maybe even address some things like the population growth and and all these you know the mental health issues and all the things that kind of plague our 
very affluent society compared to mm-hmm. other places sure. in the world because we are the richest country in the world even though we have poor people here the poor here are still much better off than most poor people anywhere else on the planet so um, we have this great opportunity to to leverage these innovations and also apply the models of value and Mm -hmm. you know i just think that that's exactly i mean that's right there's (laughs) definitely a balance there and that's what you know that's the space that you know, I and, and our team is in because it is all of these innovations, whether they're coming out of our own innovation quarter or what's happening nationally, how do we incorporate that for the best possible sort of provider patient outcome first? You know, what is what best for them? Um, and then thinking about how that also helps us achieve some of our other value-based objectives. So since the implementation of the ACA, have, have what... Tell me some wins. You know, do we have less visits to the ER? Do we have, you yeah. know, what are what are the gains that we've made? Yeah, since I that? mean, we, you know, for for Wake, um, you know, part of the ACA was the CMMI innovation, um, which is which is the. Oh God. <laughs> of course, you would part. ask me that. I, <laughs> CMMI, we'll look it up. So we'll look it up. It's 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 one of CMS's. It's where innovation and value-based payments come different um, where they test different models and part of CMMI was the Medicare shared savings program and that's where wake really started sort of down the path of how do we start to shift how we get paid differently based on you know improving health outcomes and lowering the cost of care Um, and and wake has um, I think been highly successful especially with its ACO chess partner and and bringing in probably 30 plus million in lowering the cost of care, which means I'd have to look at the specific numbers, but how many ED visits did we lower, avoid unnecessary inpatient admissions, um, keeping people healthier, because that was all about, you know, we're going to pay you differently uh, and, and how you get paid differently is by how you, again, improve quality and lower the cost of care by lowering unnecessary utilization Mm -hmm. um, and engaging your patients differently in some of these care models we've talked about. So uh, Wake has been on that path. I think it's um, nearing 11 or 12 different contracts. So, you know, we're about to be in different contract arrangements with Medicaid, which will incent us to do similarly. But we really started this journey with our Medicare population, Um, And we have put a lot of different, uh, again, programs, care models, resources in place to support our patients and our providers to care for them a little bit differently. So um, I would say if you look at our quality scores or look at our cost of care reductions, we've been very successful in that. I mean, I think other states have obviously used Medicaid expansion as a piece under the ACA and have also seen... Obviously, when patients can get a patient-centered medical home, have maybe more continuity in their primary care, et cetera, that has also shown to reduce ED and unnecessary admission. So that's ultimately what we're trying to do is make sure that that relationship with that medical home is there and that we have the right resources in place to manage, especially those rising and high-risk patients that need that extra level of support. Now, if I ask the same question to a clinician, a physician about... (laughs) 
you know, are they better off now financially, let's say, or? That's a great, that is a great question. And I would defer that to some of my physician (laughs) partner friends. You know, that is, you know, that is something that's not unique to hear. That's a a question across the country. You know, fee for service has been in place, what, since for, for quite some time. And the way we pay our providers has aligned with that. So I think we're still in this transitional period. What what I know I've seen more of is is putting definitely more of that of some of those quality performance metrics as part of how they get paid differently, but it's a portion and the other portion is still maybe consistent with how we've been paying for a while. So I think that's a work in progress. Um are they better off? I, I think it probably would depend on who you ask. I think, again, primary care has really been the group of providers that have have seen the most of this focus. You know, where we've engaged maybe specialists in pockets is around bundled payments and things for different procedures um, that around hips and knees. Maybe, you know, weight, our weight management group has been very progressive in the medical and surgical space thinking about bundles. But... Mm-hmm. Um, we're still not there yet. So I, I would put that out to my colleagues, but I would say it would be probably fairly mixed from I have seen nothing to, well, maybe I've seen a little bit, mm-hmm. but um, yeah. Well, I always like to kind of feather in medical education and all this and just wondering how this change in from fee-for-service yeah. to value-based has affected like recruiting and enrollments for primary care and rural physicians and that kind of stuff versus specializations where the big money is or at least traditionally and yeah. and how that's affected uh uh you know future medical students uh you know direction that they want to head for their specialty yeah i mean i know i think here at our school of medicine and, and definitely in vermont you know layering in sort of these components into the third and, you know, second and third year education. Um, I know that there's a course that's really focusing on social determinants. You know, I think some of the models are how do we pay primary care differently? Do we just pay a straight salary so the physician doesn't have to worry about RVUs or how much time they spend with a patient? They could do what they need to do um, to direct primary care, which is a newer model that CMS is is kind of putting out there as part of CMMI to, again, that's kind of going more towards, I will pay you, you know, $100 per member per month to provide primary care for this patient, and you, you can do what you need to do to mm-hmm. support their health goals. Those are different models, and I think I'm probably not the best expert to say what, what would entice, you know, a somebody who's maybe in their second or third year and and is planning to stay in primary care, you know, what is that exposure that gets them to want to stay in that space and go to rural areas, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, and I think part of that is, I would say a little bit in their, who they are in their spirit and their community oriented, you know, obviously Vermont, like North Carolina has a lot of rural components. And I think it's that, um, desire to really want to support the community that you reside in. And I think there's a, there's a different element there because you're really engaging, you see yourself as, as more community oriented and, and, and caring for your, your neighbors really. Yeah, And I've had some guests on the podcast that talk about their, 
the amount of hope they have just by the how concerned the rising classes of medical students are about the community and social determinants yeah. and diversity yeah. and inclusion and all the things that tie into these vulnerable populations mm-hmm. that 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 can really see improvement from these uh, efforts. It's just attracting those type of students to right. stay so in lo- there. And, right, and, so loan forgiveness programs right. and others. But I think, yeah, I mean, I think that's what I think, you know, using my Vermont experience, working closely with them, some of those practices, it was really about being part of that community and providing a very vital service that the community really appreciated mm-hmm. um, and, and being a voice in the community about all of not just healthcare, but what was going on socially and wanting to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to switch gears a little bit and um, talk, maybe ask about what kinds of efforts, if any, are that you see either nationally or here recently about um, reaching the patients where they are, not through uh, RN navigators or faith health sure. kind of groups, but um, clinics in in neighborhoods that are maybe economically depressed historically, and 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 you know we we hear this word systemic and and uh, in negative, and, and and I like to turn that around and create opportunities with that, and say, uh, you know, how do we create i mean i know cvs and 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 walgreens and places like this are doing clinics in those stores and those stores are in those neighborhoods but i'm thinking about more like you know a clinic day you know every other week where people come in just get their blood pressure checked and their blood sugar checked and stuff like that and being proactive about preventative medicine yeah no i mean i think here I think the school-based health alliance, you know, again, that's maybe thinking about it doesn't have to be a bricks and mortar built to be a clinic, but to your point, is there a space that we can do some of those low tech, but have make a huge difference where people are anyway, where people are anyway. I mean, I think, you know, I think we're about to unveil the mobile clinic that's going to be going out to where the community is. But Mm -hmm. I think, partnering with schools. I mean, faith health, certainly, I think there are definitely some of our faith and church partners who open their doors and and provide that. Um, You know, that's where I think the, the Imagine for Scythe and some of the purpose built um, work is very interesting because I think the goals are to do very similarly. Mm -hmm. When the community comes together and identifies healthcare is a need, you know, do we have, where is the space and how can we partner with someone to come in? I think, mm-hmm. you know, Wake, um, with really with our, with Novana as a partner did open a clinic in the Highland Avenue area and, and really integrated that with some of our behavioral health partners. Mm-hmm. Um, that is an example of a brick and mortar space of where patients are that we, that need, that we need care and putting some space there. But I think thinking about schools, churches, community centers. Mm-hmm. Um, that's definitely one. I think the other space, newer, and I don't think we're quite there from a scaling perspective, is do they need to come into a space? Could we, if they have a smartphone, how do we engage them? So it's it's not uh, all or nothing. I think there's multiple things that we need to be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's how I certainly look at it. I think um, I think we... I think about our multiple initiatives, investments, and some are much more long-term 
uh, focusing in on improving the health, you know, obviously, you know, playgrounds are a great example of childhood activity all the way to Brunner Fit, which is very focused on delivering a set of services um, to kind of, so what are some of those short-term investments and long-term? And I think delivering care is, we, we want to keep patients in their communities and where they are and so they don't have to travel because that is one of some, sometimes that's a significant barrier. Um, but it's, it's also, I think some of the solutions are unique to those communities of what's going to work best. Yeah. And so, well, I was, you know, you mentioned something there about reaching the, you know, reaching people where they are. Um, and I was thinking one of the biggest factors of basic or, you know, one of the basic determinants of health would be health literacy. Yeah. And how do we improve that? And we don't need brick and mortars for that. We we can, you right. know, have information booth at the playground, you know, or we could, yeah. Uh, we, yeah. I mean health fairs, farmers markets, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah. I would say health literacy is definitely you know, seemingly so, you know, that, that is definitely what I see as a fairly significant barrier because if there is that there trying to explain a complex regimen or a complex set of medications that you need to take at a certain time, that that's hard. I think that's hard for anybody in an, an acute episode, but if you layer in low literacy, I think that makes it even more of a challenge. You know, I I would look to some of the work that Downtown Health Plaza has done. I think that they really think about addressing all those pieces. But I think that's something that we can always do a better job mm-hmm. on. And whether that is creating more awareness on, hey, we do have some access points. Some are traditional and they're our clinic space, but some are not. Mm-hmm. How do we get the word out better there? Mm-hmm. Um, to also you know, partnering with some, again, of our community partners to help support literacy. I, yeah. I think that's key. Well, one of the examples I got to plug here is, is the Brenner Fit Mobile Kitchens through yeah. a grant from Coles, the Coles family. And yeah. they go out and do basic cooking skills and shopping lists and recipes and knife skills and, and just how to get the ethos of prep preparing your food at home and that that is such a huge has such a huge impact on overall health is just Mm -hmm. eating healthy um that time as a family together to sit Mm -hmm. down and eat because food does bring us all together i've had a couple podcasts on on that alone i can talk all day about (laughs) that it's one of my big 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 areas of interest and uh so they're you know they're they're addressing it from the aspect of you know these daily things you do several times a day of putting something from a plate into your mouth or hopefully not from a drive through window every day but you right. know just starting where health has the most impact or where your actions have the most impact and and right. so that they're you know we're we're partnered with Brenner Fit to bring the culinary medicine curriculum through mm. Northwest AHEC and we you know we're we're we have clinicians come to that so that they can then translate that to their patients and provide them with uh, some of these more personal things that they can address during a visit. And that builds trust too, I think is, you know, Hey, do you have the basic cooking? You know, here's a list of the basic things you could do for, you know, $10 will get you these, this equipment. And then here are some shopping lists that you can eat healthy and things that are WIC approved. And, you know, and even some of the, initiatives they have is actually recording a visit to the shopping, you know, to the grocery store and, and, 
you know, showing where the healthy options are. And that kind of health literacy, I think, is mm-hmm. is just hugely important. But I'm thinking also of, like, daily reminders, text messaging, you know, uh, chatbots, that kind of thing that are almost like an extension. Because right. I always think in terms of scale and how do mm-hmm. we – how do we get this? Because we can't have one to one. Right, it's just not feasible in in any sense. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I see a lot of activity in the community for addressing, you know, where where health begins, and that's what yeah. you put into your body. Yeah. And then on top of that is the you know the the component of being active and and getting right. people to walk more and do more and interact because i think we also face this uh real challenge of people using technology and so quote unquote social media and it's becoming it's making a lot of us less social yeah social i mean social isolation is one of the key Mm -hmm. you know when you think about what are some of the questions we ask patients that's that's what i would consider one of those key social determinant questions because I think if you're socially isolated that's actually has the potential to be uh more negative and not support as positive of a health outcome I mean I think those pieces that you just raised around are foundational and I think again they've you know our public health partners have always known that it's now that again we're on this journey of getting paid differently that I think opens the eyes of maybe some others that, Hey, we should be investing more in these because that's actually what keeps our community and our patients healthier. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think the, what excites me in this sort of movement from volume to value is it, it opens up some of that dialogue. And, um, you know, what I loved about seeing, you know, some of the conversations both here, but in my time in Vermont is I would love to talk with our CFO there because you know, it was really interesting to hear that he he was saying, hey, I, now that we're getting paid differently for a significant portion of our patient population, that really forces us to think differently about what our investments need to be. Mm-hmm. And that's a great example of probably in a traditional model that's a smaller program. Maybe that's we need, you know, all of our high-risk communities need to have that. So we need to double, triple the size. And that's where our investments need to go versus maybe you know, more, more of the traditional scale. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to start with some more personal things. What, what sure. attracted you back here? Yeah. So, I mean, I will have to say that I love Winston-Salem. I, um, and I, I think I realized that even more in my time away. I think my, uh, I have some family here. Uh, and I, I really coming back here was an opportunity to focus really on sort of the population health work with, what's happening with Wake Forest, with our ACO chess partner, with what's happening in Innovation Quarter, and really working, you know, to bring that all together. And then the potential opportunities with what's happening uh, with our atrium partnership and how we're scaling some of our population health work, that really did excite me. Um, I I won't lie, I love the sunshine and the warm heat. So (laughs) as much as I love a lot of things about Vermont. I love the outdoors. Uh, it's, it's a cold place. Um, and so I think our family is happy to be back. And I can certainly say that my, both of our families were thrilled that we were, were coming back to the area. So, mm-hmm. um, but there's a great leadership team here and I have the privilege and opportunity to get to work with them and some of the relationships that I, um, had previously 
you know, really helped make that decision for me. So, well, here's a softball for you. How sure. awesome is your boss, Julie? Oh yeah. So she, yeah. I mean, she, that was obviously, it's exciting to see her as a leader here and all she's, um, doing, thinking about education and, and how we leverage all of what's happening in innovations with our clinical enterprise. And, uh, I have the opportunity to work with Terry Williams, who's our chief strategy officer, who's really had a vision for this since day one that he got here and really starting to see some of that execute. So being part of his team to do that was really um, a key factor for me as well. All right. Well, tell us about what you like to do in your off time. Uh, my off time, I love kayaking. It's one of my things that I enjoy, whether it's whitewater or, or flat water. So, um, and I get to do more of that down here too. The season was pretty short up in Vermont. I <laughs> uh, got a lot of skiing in and mm-hmm. cross country, but uh, kayaking is is something I really enjoy both personally, but with my family, it's very peaceful and relaxing um, and allows me to focus just on that. And, um, and I love being in nature. So I also love hiking, um, just getting outside as much as possible. Um, one more question and we'll wrap up. What, uh, is the thing you love most about your job? I really love the diversity of it. I get to, I think that's what's attracted me, you know, academic medical centers are complex places, but the other side of that is you get to interface with so many different groups and I I love working with providers. Um, but I love that I get to work with really what I call a pretty cross functional matrix team. My job is not the same day in day out. And at, you know, at the end of the day, you know, our goal is to improve the health of our community. So engaging how we think about that and are thinking about how delivering healthcare differently and getting paid differently is, is what I love. So well, great. Well, Jennifer Houlihan, I appreciate you coming today, and welcome back to Winston-Salem. Thank you very much.